Now, we are starting a new series today um, on the Song of Solomon, and we're calling it It's Not Complicated, because how many of you have been on Facebook, um, and you've noticed some of your friends on Facebook have changed their relationship status, uh, and have changed it to It's Complicated, right? And, and, the, and the deal with It's Complicated, it's confusing, right? Because you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, we believe that relationships don't actually have to be complicated. That God, in his wisdom, has put a book in the Bible that speaks directly to relationships. And this book shows us how to honor God, uh, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're widowed or divorced. It shows us how to honor God in all of our relationships. And so we are going to be taking seven weeks to work through this book called Song of Solomon. And I'm really excited about it. And here's why I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it, one, for theological reasons. What I love about Song of Solomon is that it tears down the walls between what is usually considered sacred and what is usually considered secular. So, so sacred things are those things like, like worship and, and serving one another and, and, and loving one another and like being in the church together and, and praying. <coughs> those things are typically considered sacred things. Secular things are those things like love and sex and romance and conflict. But in God's economy, what I love is that there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. They are all together in one. This book shows us that. Because, because what's interesting, in this book that we're studying, God never speaks once. It's one of those books in the Bible where God never speaks, and yet... The divine is dripping all over this book about very human things of love and relationships and conflict and sex. And so I don't only have, have theological reasons why I love this book. I've got a very pragmatic reason why I love this book and why I love teaching it. And that is my marriage needs it. My marriage needs the truth in this book. You need the truth in this book. We all need the truth in this book, no matter where you are. If you look at the person next to you, they are either married or single. And this book speaks to both. This book shows us how to be single and honor God and shows us how to honor God in our marriage. And so there's this pragmatic reason that I believe we all need it. But I'm also excited about it for another reason. If you listen to the say of the church, I believe, and the elders believe, and we believe that God is, is, is growing us to be a church for those who don't have a church. This book is designed by God to reach everyone. I've been counseling now for, for decades. We'll just call it that. We'll just say decades, right? There have been so many times where I sit down with a couple and, and their life is literally, I mean, they are this close to hitting the, destruction, the, 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 the big red button, you know, the self-destruct button. They are this close to doing it. And there are so many times like, gosh, if they would have just come a year ago and if they would have just put in some of these simple tools into their marriage, they wouldn't be where they are today. Because God has designed relationships not to be complicated, but to be simplified if we simply honor him in our relationships. And that's what this book is going to unpack. And so I believe that, 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 this, that there are theological reasons to love this book, there are practical reasons to love this book, and then the visionary in me says, gosh, this whole city needs this book. Did you know 
that 50% of the population, if you were to draw a circle around this church, 50% of the people that live in this area live in single uh, parent households. This city needs this book. We need this book. So with that, turn to me to Song of Solomon. Um, We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It's on page 455 in the Bible that's in front of you, which is a little confusing because if you use that Bible, there's actually not a page number on the page where Song of Solomon starts. So find like 453 and turn over and you'll get there. Um, uh, But it's there. You can also do the Bible app uh, that Caleb talked about. Um, Click under events and Fellowship Asheville and everything is there. But I do have one request, and I'm probably going to repeat this a few times as we go through this book because I've got one request as we go through Song of Solomon. Solomon. And it is this, don't look around, but look inside as we go through this book. Because we're going to talk about some deep stuff here, we're going to talk about some convicting stuff, and we're going to talk about some fun stuff, right? Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to look to the person next to you and think that I'm talking to them. Or that if they would do this, our marriage would be better. I want you to look to your own heart and to your own life. We do this marriage ministry here called Reengage, and it kicks off in January and it goes for like 16 or 18 weeks, something like that. In Reengage, there is this phrase that we use over and over and over again that says this stay in your own circle. Now, what we mean when we say that in Reengage is that it means if you were to draw a circle around just yourself, God has empowered you to change everyone that's in that circle, and that's it. Just you. God has not empowered you to change anybody else. He hasn't empowered you to change your spouse. He hasn't empowered you to change your boyfriend or girlfriend. And if you don't believe me, parents, he hasn't empowered you to change your children, which is evident when you take them to the grocery store. Right? That's when a parent realizes, I can't do anything to change the will of this child. You see, we're going to stay in our own circle as we go through the Song of Solomon. Now, here's what this means in a practical way, all right? None of this, right? No elbow throwing as we talk about something, right? No knee clenching as we go through this. And none of this, none of the rubbing of the back with the fingernails like this when it gets intense for them, right? Okay, Um, let's not do any of that. No clearing of the throat at an appropriate time, right? Let's stay in our circle as we go through this. Well, let's dive in. All right, verse one. The verse one is interesting because it says the song of songs, which is Solomon's. This is like a little title page. What you're going to see in this book is that this book is a song right? Um, Which is why it's called the Song of Songs. And in some of your translations, it's not called Song of Solomon as a title. It's called Song of Songs. Because what the author is doing here, what God is doing here, working through, I believe, Solomon, is that they are placing this song above all other songs, right? For, For example, Jesus is called the King of Kings, which means he is above every kingdom that there is and ever has been and ever will be on earth, no matter their government structure, no matter if it's a theocracy or a democracy or a monarchy, like like God is head of it all. Jesus is the king of kings. This book is taken to be the song of all songs. 
It is to be taken as the most important song that ever has been and that ever will be. But because it's a song, we also know that it is poetry, right? And if you're like me, poetry was not my favorite thing uh, in freshman literature. But here's the deal about poetry. Poetry is designed to be felt, right? It is designed not just to pass on information, but to pass on information through emotion. And so you're designed, this song is designed for you to experience it as we learn from it. And y'all, I'm going to tell you, if you haven't read Song of Solomon, it is going to get very spicy. And it is going to get spicy kind of quick, all right? This is designed for you to feel this. As a matter of fact, it, it's so designed to, for you to feel this. Uh, um, um, it's, it's said, and, and I believe it because the people that told me I trust, but it said that Hebrew young men weren't allowed to read this book until they were adults because it gets that spicy, right? So it's a song, and so we're designed, it's designed for us to experience and learn from it. As a matter of fact, if you had a Hebrew Bible in front of you, uh, the Hebrew Bible is in a different order than our Bible. And, and, and the Hebrew Bible, would have, you, you would have finished the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon. Proverbs 31 talks about this noble woman. And then you would have gone to Ruth, because that's the next book, and, and, and that's a picture of what a noble woman looks like. And then Song of Solomon comes after Ruth, because it's what a noble woman looks like in a relationship. So you've got Ruth, and know what, this is what a noble woman looks like in her community. And, and Song of Solomon, this is what a noble woman looks like in a relationship. In our Bible, it's housed in the wisdom literature. So you've got, you've got, you've got Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes, you've got Song of Solomon. And so we're de- it's designed for us to learn from it, and it's the song that we get to experience. But also in this title page, you get to see who wrote it, right? So it's the Song of Solomon. And who does it say wrote it? It says, which is Solomon's. Here's the deal, though. Some people think Solomon could not have written this. Solomon could not have written a book about true love. Do you know why? Because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I know, that's stupid, isn't it? Because of Deuteronomy 17, 17, that's why it's stupid. Like the scripture says not to. Um, but, but he did. And, and, and so the question is, how could a man with that many lovers write a book? How could God use him to write a book about true love? Well, here's what I think. I think he's actually the perfect person to write this book because he knows what true love is. Right? He, he knew what, what relationships forge for political reasons or money reasons feels like. What those are, because that's what a lot of his relationships were, because he was, he was a wealthy man, this, one of the most powerful men uh, alive at the time, and other nations wanted to, wanted to align with him. And so a lot of his relationships were based on political reasons and money reasons, not on love. And then he meets her, and she meets him, and it is love that's different from the other loves that he has, and it is true love. Much like David could write about forgiveness, the, 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 the guy who, who committed adultery, 
and who murdered someone could write about forgiveness of God because he experienced it. Paul could write about the grace of God because he was a murderer of Christians, and yet Jesus himself drew Paul to become a follower of Jesus and to become a leader in the church, and so he could write about grace because he experienced grace. We can believe that Solomon wrote this because he knows what true love feels like. He knows what a love honoring to God feels like. And because of all that, because of the theological reasons and the pragmatic reasons and because we know Solomon's story and because of all this, one of the things we're going to see time and time again as we, as we go through this book is this. We're going to see the quality. The quality of your relationship with Jesus will determine the quality of all your relationships. Because here's what I could do as I teach through this book. I could, I could go through this passage and I could give you practical ways to make your relationships better, to make your life better. But here's the problem if I do that. If I do that, you will go do that. And we will create a bunch of religious people because they do what they think God wants them to do. My hope is that we leave this series every week walking closer to Jesus. I don't want you to do better. I want you to be better. And there is a huge difference in that. And the only way to be better is to see Jesus as better than the other stuff in your life. And it's to walk closer with him. And so, so I am going to give you practical stuff, but listen, we are also going to link all of this to the gospel. And because I know that as you walk with Jesus, so you will walk with those around you. Well, let's look at verse 2. Okay, we're just going to jump right into the spicy stuff. This is, this is the woman speaking, and she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Now, Samuel Goldwyn, who is uh, famous in the movie industry, uh, he said, For a successful film, you need to start with an earthquake and then move to the climax. Right? This is starting with an earthquake. This is verse 2 of this book, and she says, I want him to kiss me. Right on the mouth. Right? This woman that we're introduced to, she is longing for this man. She is attracted to this guy. And this attraction leaves her wanting him to kiss her. And ladies, let me ask you. You may not have thought those exact words, but here's what you've done. At least I've been told you do this. I haven't seen it in action. I've been told that you do this. You go on a date. Right? You have a crush with a guy. You're sitting at home in your room, and what you do is you write your first name with his last name just to see how it looks, right? And you work on your signature with this new last name. That's what she's doing. She's like, I want this guy. Now, here's the question. Why does she want this guy? Because we're going to see that she's thinking about something in particular about him. And guys, it's not his CrossFit pecs, all right? Like, that's not, that's not it. Look at verse 3. It, she says, Your anointing oils are fragrant, and your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins love you. The young ladies love you. Now, in ancient times, people rarely bathed, right? They didn't, they didn't have showers. They didn't have bathtubs like we have. And so they used oils to cover uh, to cover their, their natural fragrance, you know, like, like they, 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 they wanted to cover that up. If you were wealthy, uh, like Solomon was, you had a unique fragrance that was just yours. And so anytime somebody smelled it, they would think of you. Now, now this, you know, 
go downtown and you smell patchouli. That's the same thing. Like, that's, 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 that's what they did, right? And when she smells his smell, when she smells that fragrance, that oil, it reminds her of him. And just that simple smell reminds her of him and brings pleasure to her. But there's something unique about him that she's saying right now. Because when she says that, that he is like oil poured out, his name is oil poured out. She's speaking of his reputation. And, and here's what's interesting with, uh, with the oil that they use in the temple, the way that they got that oil is they would press olives, right, and, and make olive oil. And that very first pressing of olives was the best and most purest oil that there, that there can be. And they would take that oil and they would use it in the temple. And that would be the oil that they used to light the lamps in the temple. That would be the oil that they used to pour over the sacrifices. And so what she's saying is that his name is temple worthy. His name is like that olive, that oil that's used in the temple. It is the best of the best. And so she's saying this guy that she wants him to kiss her, this guy that she's attracted to, he has got a godly character. Now, for those of you who aren't married and for those of you who are dating and, and, and trying to figure out if the person that you're interested in has a godly character, I do have some, some practical advice for you, some, some practical application for you to kind of know uh, how to determine if, if the person that you're attracted to does have a godly character. Um, when Samuel, uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, needed to anoint a king of Israel, he went to the house of Jesse, and um, um, he knew that the king was, the future king was in the house of Jesse, and so he told Jesse to bring out all of his sons. So he did, and he lined them up, and man, they were all these young, handsome, strapping men. And, and in that part of the Bible, you see, you see Samuel wait, and he says, you know, God looks I mean, men, men look up to the outside, but God looks to the heart. And, and the way to know if someone has a godly character is to look at their heart, to look at their soul, to look at what they do. And so, 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 so here are some ways to determine if the person that you're attracted to has a godly character. Ask, look for this. How do they respond when they're under stress? Like, how do they respond when they're under stress? When, when I was single... Uh, and I was attracted to Stacy. Like, I got to watch her in some pretty stressful environments. She went through a year-long discipleship program that was pretty intensive. She worked. She was pouring her, out, her life out, pouring herself out, ministering to other people. And so I got to see her in what, at that time, we thought was a really stressful environment. And I got to see her grow in her faith and trust of the Lord in that. And, y'all, that was super attractive to me. How does the person respond under stress. What about this? Who are their friends? Again, during that time with Stacy, I got to see what her reputation was like with others. The, the girls that she had around her, they all encouraged each other's faith and they, they pursued Jesus together. She was loved by everyone and people looked up to her like that was so attractive to me. And here's another one to see what's going on in someone's heart. Are they obedient to authority? You know, most people um, are single in their, you know, in their, in their 20s and mid-20s. Uh, and it's interesting, that's also the season of your life where you do all the grunt work. 
right? It's in your 20s and 30s that you're probably not starting businesses. You're working for somebody else who started the business. And you're the one that has to do all the work. You're the one that has to do all the, like, the, 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 the basic work that has to get done. And it's real easy to let that sink into your character. How does someone respond to being obedient to their authority? Do they complain about their bosses? Do they, do they complain about their parents? Now, when I was dating Stacy, and I never heard her say a bad word about her bosses. And, you know, she worked like at a restaurant in a deli. It's not like it was this, this Christian ministry environment. Like she, she worked um, with some tough people. And I never heard her say a bad word about them. Even with her family, there were frustrations, but she still honored her mother and father in all those conversations. And so that was all very attractive. Now, for a big chunk of us in this room, we're already married. And you might be thinking, I can just tune that part out, right? I've already gone through that. I've already been declared attractive. I'm done. I can be who I want to be, right? No, 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 for a couple of reasons. But, and I'll get to one of them in just a minute. But I have a question. And the question is this, are you still attractive to your spouse? Not, not, I'm not talking in a physical sense, because let's be honest, the best we ever looked was the wedding day. And it has been downhill since then, right? So let's not talk about that. Are you still attractive to your spouse? Is your character appealing to your spouse? Have you, have you slipped in that area? Has your character been compromised? And, and let me tell you, some of this, the answer is yes. Because dating is false advertising, right? Like you are working hard to put your best foot forward. That's part of what dating is. You shower before you go on dates. You do your hair before you go on dates. Like you look good when you go out on dates. What's funny is I have uh, some friends of mine and he drove a Jeep when he was dating his, his wife. Uh, well, they weren't, you know what I mean, when they were dating. And after they got married, they were driving in the Jeep. She said, hey, can we go ahead and just put the top on and, and, and drive with the top on. It was this beautiful day. And he's like, why? It's a beautiful day. And she goes, I don't like going in the Jeep. It messes with my hair. And all. He's like, you're kidding. This whole time we were dating, I thought you loved it. She's like, well, I love you. I don't love driving in the Jeep. And so he put the top on and sold the Jeep, and now they don't have one. <laughs> because there's a part of dating that's just false advertising, Right? I'm talking about stuff, though, that's more severe. Has your character declined? Have immoral slips become okay and no longer confessed as sin? I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm asking you, are you improving? Is that still part of who you are? Have little white lies become normal in your relationship? Y'all, this is silly. Um, uh, I... I, I say this, and then I'm going to have to kind of define it. I sometimes struggle with telling the complete truth. If you've been here for a while, you, you've heard me say that before. And I don't mean like I'm going to lie to you and, and tell these big things. It's these little things. And, and I'm trying to work on it. There's a lot of reasons why. A lot of it's just because I want you to like me. And if I tell you the whole truth, you may not like me. And then it becomes about me. And not about you. It's ugly, blah, 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 blah. But there's one time. There's one time in Stacy and my relationship where I will boldface lie to her 99.9% of the time. 
And y'all, this is so silly. We'll be laying in bed watching TV. And there's something that happens unless it is like a Marvel show or like super intriguing to me. There's something that happens that when the comfort of our bed hit the remote control of that TV and that TV turns on, I pass out. Like literally, my wife has watched seasons of Psych and I don't know what the intro is. Like it is like ambient. It knocks me out, right? And so a commercial will come on, like I will be like breathing heavy, maybe even snoring. And a commercial will come on, you know how they get louder and you kind of, and she's like, were you asleep? 99.9% of the time I will go, no, I wasn't asleep. I'm working on that, to be honest with you. Like I am working on saying, yeah, I was, I was totally asleep. You know, or even, because sometimes, you know how like you, you're not sure if you're asleep. Like your eyes are closed and you can hear the TV and like in your head you can kind of picture what's going on and then a commercial comes on and you're like, I think I was awake. Like I can tell you the last thing they said. But I also think I was asleep. Like I'm not sure how all that works. Like I'm working on being honest even there because I think character is that important. And so for you, is there an area in your relationship, is there an area in your own heart that you need to work on? If you've let your character slide, is it time to put that character back up on the list? Because let me tell you, nobody is attracted to immorality. Nobody is. And and here's the truth of the matter. As as your character grows, so does your attraction. As your character grows, so does your attraction. Look at verse 4. She says, draw me after you and let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And so she wants to be with this guy. She calls him a king. Later, she's going to call him a shepherd. But she's not saying she's attracted to him because of his title. She wants to be with him because of who he is, because of his name and his reputation. But now we have this commentary from this choir that's going to sing every once in a while. Remember, this is a song. And so, so what you're going to see is this choir kind of dispersed through this song. And, 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 and they're going to give you this this ongoing commentary about what this couple is doing. And, and, and look at what they say here, because what they're going to do is they're going to put their stamp of approval on this relationship. Because they say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than, more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And so what they're doing is they're looking at, at her attraction of this man and that it is a good, godly attraction. She is drawn to him for the right reasons, and they're saying, yes, this is good, and this is right. But now her attention is going to shift. And so she goes from talking about him to, to talking about her. Look at verse 5. She says, I am very dark but lovely. Like, pay attention to that word. I'm very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Now, the tents of Kedar were these tents that Bedouins would have, and so they're, they're these nomadic people, and they were made uh, from goat skin that was really dark, dark goat skin. And so she's comparing her skin to the skin uh, that was used to make these tents, and the curtains of Solomon were these dark purple ornate curtains. And so she's saying that when she looks at her skin, that it's really dark, and, and, and we'll see why here in the, in the next part of, the, of verse 6. She says, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. 
And so what she's saying here is, is she's looking at her skin like she looks at this guy and she loves him and she loves his name. She loves his character. And then all of a sudden she's looking down and she's like, huh, huh, I don't, I don't, I don't look so good right now. I had, to, I had to work. Now, keep in mind, this isn't degrading the work that she's done. She's very clear that her brothers made her do it. There's a little family conflict going on, Right? But keep in mind, in the Hebrew Bible, this comes after Proverbs 31, where we see this noble woman work. And so work is attached to, to, to purpose, and it's attached to, 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 to being good and noble. And so her work isn't what's bad. The fact that she's had to work in the sun has made her skin dark. And in the midst of that work, she says that she is taking care of the family vineyard, but neglected her own. And, and what she's saying is, like, I've done the work, but I haven't kept up with my own body. And so what she's saying is, is we know that She's lovely. She says that in verse 5. She says, listen, I know on the inside I am lovely, but on the outside I could use a little work right now. Right? She's saying on the outside she doesn't look so good. Now we've seen the character of this man that garners her attention and her attraction. But here we also see her character. And in particular, what we can pull from this is her identity. Right? We've seen his character is a noble one and a godly one. But here, her identity, we've seen her call herself lovely, but right now she says not so good. So she has this secure identity, but she also has this very realistic attitude. And ladies, let me tell you, men find this attractive because just like godly character is linked to godly attraction, godly attraction is also linked to godly identity. And just like we talked about character, let's, let's focus in on identity because this woman looked into his man's heart and saw his character. But when she looks in her own heart, she sees this godly view of herself. She looked to her own heart and, and she saw that she is lovely, even though the outside may not echo that. Now, ladies, and this is true for men too, but, but in particular ladies, when you look at your heart, when you look at your identity, when you look at the part of you that nobody else sees, what do you see? Do you see someone lovely? You see, she was able to point out her biggest flaw and not let that be her identity. She was able to say, right now, I don't look good. Ooh, but I'm lovely. Y'all, do you let your identity, your, do you let your flaws define you? Do you let your flaws sink into your identity? Because let me tell you, if she did, guess where this book would end? Right here. If she said, I'm not so good on the outside, which means I'm not so good on the inside, you would never see anything else in this book. It'd be done. But you see, she didn't let her flaws define her. She knew that God did. Now, y'all, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to harp on you and tell you the way to feel better about yourself is to feel better about yourself, right? The way to feel better about yourself is to stop feeling bad about yourself because that doesn't work, does it? What we have to do is see ourselves through somebody else's eyes. 
Because this is about a woman being attracted to a man with noble character and about a, a man being attracted to a woman whose, whose identity is anchored in, in, in something solid, not the shifting sands of her, of her flaws. Right? Because, let's be honest, and this goes to everybody in the room, not just to the women, but we know what our flaws are, don't we? We look in the mirror and see them. A little tip for the men in the room, for the husbands in the room, you don't ever have to point out your wife's physical flaws. She's fully aware of them, right? And I have seen some men just be harsh to their wives, and it destroys them because for our identity, for our identity to be secure, we need to know how God sees us. We need to know and understand how God sees us through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. Now, here's what I love about this imagery. This imagery is this crowd of people gathered around, and this imagery is, is, is the reader. It's you in the middle of this race running, and it is this long race, and it is a race where you the sins that, 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 that drag you down, you've let them go. And, and you are running free. And then it says this. It says, it says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Because the picture is, if it's a race and you're running it, you're not looking to the sides anymore. You are looking straight ahead to the person who's standing at the finish line cheering you on, and that is Jesus. And when we do that, that is what anchors our identity. It's when we start looking to the side to see how we're doing compared to everybody else that our identity uh, can get confusing. Because now it's not about how Jesus thinks I'm running. It's about how I'm running compared to them. And y'all, comparison will always destroy your contentment every single time. When the author of Hebrews says, let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One female Christian author says this, when we are caught up in the immeasurable riches of Christ and content with all he offers us, contentment with our physical appearance will follow. You see, both character and identity are transformed by Jesus and nothing else. And so let me ask you, do you need your attraction level renewed? Whether you're single, whether you're married, no matter what kind of relationships that you are in, do you need your attraction level renewed? Do you need your character and identity tweaked or do you need them completely overhauled? And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know this. First of all, that sin will always separate. That's what it does. Sin will always separate. Sin that is held on to, instead of like the Hebrew of author said, that, that, that to leave it behind, the sin that so easily entangles, the sin that we hold on to, and the sin that we choose not to call sin, and we choose to embrace it and, and instead of struggle with Instead of struggling with it, that sin will always separate. 
It shatters character. It splits identity. It, it, it divides groups of people. It destroys relationships. I'm going to be honest with you. When we, we taught this series here six years ago, a little bit more, just out of curiosity, how many of you were here when we taught it? Okay, that's about what I figured. A lot of you weren't here when we taught it. When we taught that series, two couples got divorced afterwards. Not what I hoped happened. But what it did is it exposed sin in their lives that they didn't want to let go of. I'm thankful for that because it brought them to a choice where they had to say, either I call this sin and I confess and repent of it or I dive in. And they chose to dive in. Y'all, don't do it. Sin separates. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, our forgiveness has been bought and paid for. That sin that so easily entangles has no power over you. It, the penalty of it and the power of it has been dealt with. But know this. Yes, sin always separates. But Jesus draws together what sin has separated. That's what he's great at. He is great at sewing together what sin has shattered. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I have something for you to consider. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that forgiveness of rebuilding a life that sin has shattered is offered to you in Jesus because he died for you and he rose from the dead and he is here today and he is in this place and he has an offer of salvation that is real and genuine and life-changing and, and you will have this relationship with God that is personal and it is intimate and it is forever and that's what Jesus offers. And so maybe today is the day for you to do that. And, and for those of us who do know this, Jesus, this is why we're doing communion today. It's because this is our reminder. This is our reminder of the basis of the relationships that we were in, that we still need this Jesus. The gospel that saves you is the gospel that sustains you. And as I'm talking, if you're under conviction and the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, you need to work on this, the answer to that is found at the table right here, not about you doing something for it. It's offering it up to God as the sin that it is and relying on him to change your heart. So for us, this gospel is needed today. And as we go into this time of communion, I have some scriptures I want you to consider. And the way we do communion here is that um, when you're ready, you come down and grab a cup and you grab a cracker and you go back to your seat and we'll take the elements together. The band will come up and play some music in the background and we want to give you time to pray, talk to God, talk to your spouse if you need to. Um, and just so you know, the, the crackers on the white plate are gluten-free crackers, and, and, and um, we want you to, to engage in all that Jesus has for you. And a part of that is I got some scriptures for you to consider as we go into this time of communion. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And Psalm 51.12 says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
And maybe some of you need that joy of salvation restored because there's sin that you've just been okay with. And it's time to be done with it. And let Jesus restore the joy of your salvation. And so as we go in this time of communion, ask God where your character needs improvement. Ask God where your identity needs anchoring. Ask God for salvation if you don't have it. And say yes to Jesus. And let's leave this place better because of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to this table, we trust you. We trust you with our lives that you will provide, that you will take care of us, that when whatever is done in darkness comes into light uh, and whatever consequences may, may come because of that, that, that you will be glorified and that we will always have you. Even if our friends leave us, even if, if, if they don't understand of us choosing a path of righteousness and holiness instead of sin, Father, that you will walk that path with us. And God, I pray that this table today is a place of healing and hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.